Welcome to Talk Time with Max Contact, the podcast where we talk about the latest contact center and customer experience, industry news, and insights. Join us as we welcome industry experts, discuss actionable strategies you can apply to your business, and help professionals like you on your path to long-term career progression and success. I'm your host, Sean McIver. Welcome to Talk Time with Max Contact. I'm Sean McIver, your host, and today I am joined by James Marshall. James is a Director of Customer Experience at Southampton City Council. James is a respected leader in local government, known for his innovative approach to driving successful, large-scale change. With a strategic mindset and effective collaboration, he maximizes resources to deliver high-quality services while working within budget constraints. And James, I don't generally like to do big, long introductions because while you're here, feel free to elaborate on anything that I may have missed or that you want to kind of highlight before we start. No, that's fine. That was long enough, I think. That's um, Yeah, so I work at Director of Customer Experience, re- responsible for a range of customer-facing services within a local authority setting at, at Southampton City Council. Excellent. Thank you. I'm going to start off. I'll be honest, this is a little bit intimidating talking to someone who's government. I haven't done this before, so bear with me. I'm going to start off with a really kind of honest question on my part. Is it okay to refer to people in your role as customers? Yes, yeah, good question. Uh, firstly, though, it's local government, so it's less scary. Just so, yes, so you don't need to worry too much. So in terms of customers, yeah, that does cause a debate in the sector because people don't have choice about services. So is someone a customer when a local authority is taking their child away because they've been deemed uh, not fit to be a parent? Probably not. And if you call them that, they'd probably be pretty cross. But we tend to use the term customer in the broader sense because we want to embody and take some of the kind of customer service best practices from the public sector and live that out in the way we deal with our residents and people we're interacting with every day. Because a big chunk of what we do is very transactional. Someone's reporting a pothole, someone needs to pay for a parking permit or pay for a parking ticket. And actually, they are normal interactions that you'd have with other companies. And we want to sort of be shaped by that kind of customer service mentality. And calling them customers helps us with that. Understood. So let's just touch then a little bit around. So the the focus of this conversation, let's kind of cover that. The focus of this conversation today is going to be predominantly around gathering feedback and acting on feedback. And I want to tackle it in several different ways. And that'll, well, I'd like to touch on how we gather feedback, how we collate the feedback, how we decide what feedback to act on, and then the way in which we act on that feedback. And kind of to close maybe a little bit on how we then communicate that we have acted on that feedback, because I think that's also an important aspect of it. So I suppose the first question, let's start at the very beginning. As the Director of Customer Experience within Southampton City Council, how do you effectively gather and analyze feedback to improve services and address the needs of people who reside there? So I think we do it in three main ways in kind of because there's different needs and different ways of capturing. So there's at the point of delivery, and it is a really important source of information. So after you've spoken to one of my team on the phone or after you've completed an online form or had a web chat interaction, there'll always be a feedback option at the point of delivery. So very quite micro level. There's and then there's the kind of more macro level where we do large sort of satisfaction surveys of residents once every two years to pick up some of the bigger issues. And then there's the more kind of targeted stuff when we are specifically looking to improve a particular service, a particular offer, where we might do more of a qualitative deep dive and journey map and 
track people through a customer interaction to understand their feedback, how they're feeling, what was confusing, what was clear, all of that sort of stuff to, to kind of feed into our service design process. So there's the kind of daily stuff about every interaction. There's a kind of bigger picture stuff representative of the whole city because not everyone interacts with us all the time. And then there's the kind of more targeted stuff. And I'm going to ask kind of a bit of an unusual question here that you're in something of an interesting position as well, but in that you're, you yourself are, quote, as we've said, a customer. Does that affect how you then gather feedback as well and the ways in which you kind of think about the feedback that you receive? Yeah, I think so. I think so. I think you've got to be mindful of your own biases with that and your own. And actually, it's, it's far easier for me to be a customer of the council. Um, are you talking about of the council or in general? Sorry. Of the council. Yeah, fine. Because I have an understanding that others don't. So you can't let that cloud your view. I think you need to always walk in their shoes is something we, we genuinely try to do. And actually, we should design our, We have some design principles around the way we build um, services. And we always say we should design it for the customer who's going to find it hardest. Because if they can do it, then everyone can do it. And no one's moaned about something being too simple. That just doesn't happen. So we... Yeah, it's important to put ourselves in their shoes. We do mystery shopping, cold calling. I take calls sometimes and serve customers face-to-face just to see things from their perspective. And actually, data and feedback and stuff is really helpful and powerful. But sometimes it's not as powerful as seeing that in the context of it actually happening. And I think that's where things have got real power because five stars on the end of a survey is brilliant and looks good for my metrics. But there's always more to it than just a quick click of a button. There's, there's seeing the whole journey and understanding the situation that led to that end result. I think there's also something to be said in terms of effort to provide feedback as well. If you send someone, you know, if you're on a web chat and you have five stars and you can click one of those stars at the end of a web chat, that's a relatively easy point of entry in terms of gathering feedback. Whereas if you are looking at, as you have mentioned earlier on, that the more customer journey mapping and engaging customers in a much more kind of, not robust, but much more extensive way, then by its very nature, are you biasing feedback by or is feedback naturally biased given the effort required to provide that feedback in some cases? Yeah, I think I don't think anyone can ever get around participation bias because if someone's willing to get involved, they're always easier to hear than, than than someone's not. But I think so one thing we do at the kind of at the point of delivery feedback is make sure it's as simple and easy as possible. And actually we do we judge ourselves on the volume we get because if you at that level if only 3% of interactions get feedback, then we've made it too hard. And there's that in itself that speaks to something being wrong. So we try and target a good level of quick and dirty, but easy to, easy for the customer to do. And then we can use that to pick up on trends, understand things. But it's equally then incentivizing stuff where, where we do expect a bit more time and effort because taking 12 seconds to knock out two star ratings and leave a comment at the end of a call or web chat or whatever is, is easy and that's fair. But if you're going to spend an hour, hour and a half walking through a journey or, and being more qualitative and talking about your experiences, then we incentivize that. We have a panel of people, residents across the city that we use for that more in-depth research and we can profile to make sure we're getting a good representation because there's always a risk that it's the same few that you like to engage that have got spare time and various things there's a common challenge across lots of sectors where they and their voices can be heard a lot more easily than the ones you really want to hear there's always a value so we're quite purposeful in the way we select the right people to talk about the right services but yeah low bar of entry for the simple stuff and then 
understanding the value of people's time and valuing that and then and being kind of thoughtful about who we're engaging with and, and what their situation is so that we are being as representative as possible but it's always a challenge as you say because sometimes the people you really want to hear from are too busy and they can't engage and, and that's just life isn't that i'm afraid yeah absolutely and I, I like what you said you know designing it for designing it to be the simplest it can possibly be so there is a low barrier to entry makes perfect sense as well I think one of the other differentiators between the feedback types is you've got kind of proactively seeking feedback from people that you provision service to and passively receiving feedback from people who use your service. And I think those are very distinct and different types of feedback. And again, if we think about that in terms of consumer or customer base and service users, if they are proactively trying to give you feedback, then I may be biased here, but then generally that's going to be negative feedback as well, which is something that I'm guessing is something that has to be fed in as well. Yeah, you've reminded me of something there, actually, because I think we can always, and I've just done that by focusing on surveys and kind of formal research uh, for the feedback, but actually some really, there's always really interesting stuff that comes out of actual conversations with customers. So we have a Teams channel for our customer service operatives and they can use a hashtag customer says so that if they get some and often they're actually constructive they're the ones during conversations tend to be the most constructive because they're saying well i did try to do this online but i struggle with this and then the agent will unpack that a bit and go okay that's really helpful i can read that back and they can just share that with the hashtag on the channel and then the various people can pick it up to go and address it and that's quite powerful because and also some of it's not actually given feedback like that. It's the fact that the agents are spotting a trend. Oh, I've had five people recently about a thing that I never usually get calls about. Maybe the online system isn't quite working. And then they look at it or ask a customer and they go, well, yeah, I thought I'd paid, but I hadn't. And we had an issue where the button, a supplier had changed the button that was pay and they made the cancel button far brighter than the pay button. And people were cancelling it because they were kind of, it was poor UI design. It wasn't ours, fortunately, at this stage. But we were able to go to the supplier and get it changed. And then suddenly all those calls dried up again. But an agent had been proactive enough to spot that, use the channels to share it, got the digital team involved and fixed it. So yeah, it's not all about surveys. And I think sometimes that can be a, a trap we fall into, actually. We need to, our agents are speaking to customers either in person, phone, web chat, whatever, all the time. And there's hundreds and thousands of conversations happening that are really useful. And there's lots of insight from that that we can use to improve services as well as the more formal recorded um, feedback as well. Yeah, I think that's a really good point as well. The concept and the idea of actually feedback doesn't have to be, I suppose, formalized. If you're talking to someone and you can sense that there is feedback to be given there or to be extracted from that conversation, then asking those additional questions going, just let me clarify, how would that work better for you? What would be a better way for that to work? I think that's really important. I also really like that you've mentioned about the hashtag within the channel, because it means then you've not only got the passive feedback being identified and acted on, you've got a very short feedback loop duration. So you've got very quick feedback coming in so that if something does go wrong, you know about it pretty quickly and be able to act on that and do the necessary which i think is really powerful as well yeah and it has led to some service improvements and other things that have been that we wouldn't have spotted but because the agent's been proactive or picked up from customers it's allowed us to fix issues earlier or just make things better which is ultimately why we're here you've mentioned the being able to identify that as part of a call and then alert that there is feedback there that's been extracted within your roles within the city council what initiatives or programs have you implemented that kind of ensure those sorts of things happen to make the voice of residents heard and be considered in decision-making processes 
So yeah, there's a few. I mean, things like the People's Panel uh, that we talked about before was something I was involved in setting up in a previous role, actually. But I think, so within local government, there are some things we actually have to sort of have a legal responsibility to consult on, but sometimes that's too late to help involve people in the decisions early on because you have to consult on a kind of a formal proposal. So by using a panel, surveys, customer data and all that sort of, all those sorts of things, it, we've tried to create a culture around designing with the customer at the heart of that, customer in mind, understanding it from their perspective rather than just making decisions in your um, ivory tower and hoping for the best and then wondering what happens when it all goes wrong later. So I'm not saying we're perfect at it, but it's something we certainly try and do at that early stage. I think co-design can sometimes be quite a long and complicated process, but engaging, testing things. And it's a bit like tennis, isn't it? You start with an idea, you bat it over to your customers, and then you see what comes back. And then it's, it, there's a, and there's different methods and different points in, in that kind of game of tennis until you get to something that actually you're more confident will work. But it doesn't stop as well. It's particularly in the digital uh, space. One of our, and I talked about one of our other design principles, but another one is you haven't finished because as probably maybe an old school way of thinking was, well, we've just launched this new website and then they just walk away and two years later you come back and you're like, well, why is it rubbish? Well, because you finished it two years ago and didn't touch it and the world's moved on. So it's never finished and it should be the worst it ever is on the day it goes live. Actually, that's the, the low starting point. And then it's iterated and use the analytics, use feedback, use user testing to tweak it, improve it and keep going. And yeah, we often get into that kind of project cycle on it and then, oh, it's done. Great. We're on to the next thing. Well, if you completely do that, then it will go downhill from there. And that's actually not good for users and, and residents. So that's the kind of culture we try to build around and um, things like that. One of the things that you've touched on there that I've leveraged in the past and that I just want to expand on a little bit is around engaging with the users and customers as you go through the process. And one of the things that I really like about that is the fact that as you engage with them and as you go through the process, even if the decisions or the the outcomes aren't necessarily what the user or customer would have wanted in an ideal world, if they're engaged with the process and understand the how of why that was the decision that was arrived at, then actually when it then comes to the release or the rollout or the change itself, what I've seen examples of is that within the affected population, whether that's contact center staff or whether that's customer base or whether that's your service users, you then end up with these kind of almost change champions where they're like, well, yes, it does work like that, but here's why. And here's why it wasn't built in this other way. And I think that that's incredibly powerful. Yeah. And it's hard to take a whole city on some of those journeys. But if you can take a cohort of that, then it's a starting point. But it's the same principle applies to changes within the organization. As you mentioned, looking at a staff group, it's the same thing. They're a set of key stakeholders. And if they understand, yeah, they might not like the fact we're changing to a different system and they were quite comfortable with the old system. But if they understand the rationale and what other benefits, then they're going to move on that journey more quickly. So I'm going to circle right back around to the first question that I asked then, just off of what you've just said there, because you've mentioned about internal change. And I suppose through that lens, we could expand the definition of what we've already called customer to include staff as well, because they'll inevitably have feedback. And so I suppose through that, with that in mind, how would you go about defining, I suppose, customer at a more macro level? Oh, well, I, th I, th I thought you were going to go to internal customers because also <laughs> as a service, we provide services for other departments within the council. So they're kind of our internal customers. There's that level where we would treat them as, as external customers and seek feedback and try and work with them in the same way we've described. But I suppose then there's also 
I suppose at a macro level is thinking about all of our customers and then our role in shaping and experiences across the board, which is complex because there's a we segment our audiences and look at kind of different segments and personas to look at particular when we're designing and give up particular users because people want different things from different interactions. If you are unfortunate enough to get a parking fine and no one's happy about it, but you, what you want is you want to know what you need to do and it needs to be simple. You don't want to spend an hour resolving something you're already annoyed about. If you can do that in three minutes and then just get on with your life and you know struggle off the fact that you've lost 35 pounds or whatever. But that's what people want. So that sort of customer is a very different to a customer who is trying to work out how to get adult social care support for an elderly parent or something like that. They are expecting to spend a bit more time. They're much more invested. There's a lot of information, learning, understanding different things, different options. They're not looking for it in now, wham, bam, done. So I think is there's an understanding of we can't create all journeys equal because the interactions and the context of those different interactions are quite different. So, and it means your metrics can't be across the board because if you measured the way that the adult social care interaction worked against the parking one, they'd be very different. And and that that's they and they should be as well. We'd be wrong to apply the same metrics across both of those. Yeah, no, I agree, and I think that tracks on nicely to something I want to touch on as well, which was. I wanted to just kind of interrogate or open up a conversation around there will be different scenarios for different types of feedback. And you've just kind of blown that conversation wide open in terms of the feedback for the first scenario in terms of resolving a parking fine versus the alternative scenario in terms of social care. The feedback that you would seek for that would therefore necessarily have to be a very different form of feedback for those two things, presumably. I imagine if at the end of working through a significant, I don't know how it works, but if it was a significant online process that took me quite a long time, if at the end of that I had five stars to choose from, I think that would be a very odd feedback process. Is that fair? Yeah, that is fair, yeah. And I think that also, but it also opens us up to the power of the free text. I think I'm a fan and sometimes, so I think we always try, even with the parking one, we try and always give people a free text option alongside the star rating or the one to five or whatever the, the kind of closed question is, because I think that's really powerful. And that enables us to really contextualize the ratings and understand some of the feedback. And we're fortunate as well with our telephone platform, we have a captures of a verbatim comment via voice. So the person can press their keypad for the five stars and then say, oh, your agent was great today because of that. And then that, that's coded to text and we get that comment, which is amazing. And that's super simple if you've been on the phone because you're on the phone, you'll be able to talk. So that's great. So you can then leave a comment without having to imagine trying to type it in. That would be painful, wouldn't it? So that's been really powerful. So we open the doors of free text comments and we actually read them. And I think a lot of people, we as a management team, we get together and review the feedback every month because it's a live thing. It's got to, we can't leave it too long. If it's six months later and you end up looking at something that was a bit of an anomaly, the ship has sailed, it's gone, then the, um, you've missed the opportunity to jump on it and fix it. So we try and get on top of that every month, look at it. And then we do callbacks as well. So if someone's left a bit of feedback, constructive or negative, that we weren't sure about, they'll get a callback from a manager. And people are actually really surprised when that happens because they're like, you know, they think you leave a comment at the end of a call and you think no one's going to look at this. I think that seems to be a perception. I suppose we all think that as well, maybe when we do that. But when a couple of weeks later, someone goes, oh, thank you for your feedback. Really sorry this didn't go to plan. What we're doing about that is this. People are like a bit blown away. And actually, that's a really powerful thing in changing their perception of like, they may have not had the brilliant interaction, but showing that we, we listen, we're doing something about it, hopefully helps them, encourage them to continue to 
feedback and use that for the right reason. So that's been quite a cool thing. And it doesn't take long, team leader or a manager. We only probably, we don't, we fortunately have very good levels of feedback, uh, high levels of feedback. So constructive ones or negative ones are, you know, few and far between. We're doing three or four of those a month, but they're really powerful. And actually then it can lead, and sometimes we don't quite understand. They might say something short and it's like, there was a problem with this, we don't get it. So call them back, unpack it. Ah, oh, right, I understand. Okay, yeah, yeah, I'm sure we can fix that. Thank you for your time and move on. So I know you probably want to move on to closing the loop later, but it kind of flowed into that. So that's something that we do across all levels on the digital side. It might be an email back if they've done it online rather than a phone call, but it's a, some contact back about their feedback and showing that we're taking it uh, forward is a really powerful thing. And we've had some really lovely feedback about that. And people are like, this is amazing. Thank you. Thank you for listening. It's a really positive thing for building that customer focused culture. It feels it comes across certainly to me hearing that there is very much a customer centric focus at the heart of what you're doing, the feedback on the feedback, the understood, the genuine desire to understand what the feedback is and what the intent is behind it is very, very powerful. And I suppose it feeds into something that I did want to touch on and it kind of it moves us into a new part of the conversation, I suppose, and that's around translating customer or user feedback into actual actionable insights, meaningful improvements within the provision of service. How do you go about doing that process? What's the approach? So, I mean, I described part of the approach earlier. I think one thing is uh, when people talk about actionable insights and other stuff, often they think it's big things. They think they'll open a customer report and they'll be able to change some massive fundamental thing and then everything will be better but actually it's not usually that it's usually lots of small bits that incrementally make the whole journey much more smooth and and, and do things like that and so sometimes our expectations going to that are wrong we think no one's kind of completely turned my world upside down from a customer perspective and that's i've been able to change everything but i think that's an unfair expectation it's more likely to be well that bit wasn't that clear or and so we have my I have a range of services. So I have a team that look after kind of online forms and CRM stuff, uh, the web team, and then customer operations who deal with the phone, face-to-face, web chat, all of that sort of stuff. And in each of those teams, we do the same. We have a monthly feedback meeting where we get together, look at the feedback. That might be direct feedback. That might be at the analytics, the stats, the, all the, the trends that are telling us. Because feedback isn't all just what we're told. That's really important because the voice of the customer is powerful. But people tell us, what they think about how they use services when they exit our web pages or when they you know, walk through our door, all that sort of stuff is all part of that picture. So we try and look at it in the round as well. And we go through that with and that's something that probably in some areas of director level wouldn't be involved in, but I'm keen to be involved in that because I see it as part of shaping what we're doing and setting that tone around customer culture. And we look at that and we, and we get into some real minor details, but we look at, okay, this, this isn't quite working perfectly. If we change this word, maybe this instruction is not that clear. Let's try a sentence here. Let's monitor that. Let's put some tracking on it and see if it makes an impact. And then we'll loop back around to it next month and see if it has. And if it has, we close it and we move on to the next thing. And it's actually little bits like that. Keep on doing them. It's like it's kind of blending that customer focus with that culture of continuous improvement that can enable us to then fix those issues that it might have may have only been like a, a slight inconvenience for 15 people in a month. But that's enough for us to think, no, if we can make that better, that can be even smoother for everyone. That it kind of it keeps because you don't want feedback to become tokenism. Yeah, we've got 75% satisfaction. We actually have it's in the 90s, just to clarify, it's better than that. But you know, but you, you get hung up on, on numbers and think you've done everything you need to to kind of rest on your laurels. But feedback is not a tick box for us, it's really at the heart of driving that continuous improvement, but helping us shine a light on some of the stuff 
that might not be as good as we'd like it to be and enabling us to look into it. And sometimes you don't have the answer and it results in it needs a bigger, deeper dive. You need to pull other bits of information and to talk to other colleagues from across the organization to resolve it. But it's been triggered by something that's come from a customer. I really like the fact that you've touched on a couple of things there that I want to kind of redraw attention to. And that's number one, the first thing that you said, which was around the, it doesn't have to be big giant changes. I think that's really powerful. And I think a lot of people shy away from feedback because there's a perception that it's going to be disruptive. And I don't think that that's always the case. And I think that identifying easy ways that you can make customers' journeys and lives easier when they interact with whatever process is. And I always like to think of it as being the challenge is to find the smallest, most impactful of those changes. And that's what your priority should be. And secondarily to that, I wanted to just kind of acknowledge and say that it's really awesome to hear that someone, even at your level within the organization, within the the provision of service, is still engaged on such a fundamental level. Because I think there's a risk, and I've certainly seen it in other industries, other sectors, other businesses, rightly or wrongly, but I've seen it whereby the further up the hierarchy of the organization you move, the further you removed you are from that feedback loop so it's really refreshing to hear that i think that's a risk because i think if you do remove yourself and then you remove yourself from kind of interacting with customers or understanding them then you're making decisions from a point of view where you're yeah you've got really not much of their perspective so i think it's it's actually really powerful and it, it and also you've got a model as a leader you've got a model behavior so if you too busy for the monthly feedback call where we review comments what's that saying to your team i think that it's kind of important to enable you to do your job right, but also enables you to set the tone for the culture you're trying to build. Yeah, it does. I think it's absolutely central to the culture. The culture has to be both at the top and the bottom of the whole organization. That's how you define culture. It's those habits that we all do daily. No, that makes perfect sense. And it's, as I say, it's really nice to hear that that's such a core tenet of what you're doing, which if you were to simply say that to somebody, then the response might often be, well, yeah, of course that's the case, but that isn't always the case. And pivoting on that, just kind of the gathering of feedback, we've talked about it earlier on. I'm pretty sure you've had your share of negative feedback come into those reviews from various customers. How do you approach and respond to negative customer feedback? Are there strategies that you can turn a negative into a positive experience? I'm going to go ahead and suggest that what you said earlier on about actually responding directly to the feedback on a personal level is one of those mechanisms, but other ways in which you can kind of not migrate or manipulate, but translate someone from being negative feedback to, oh, okay, actually, that's now positive feedback. Yeah. Yeah, and that made me think a bit about formal complaints. Obviously, there's a formal complaints procedure which sets it up, but I often find we've usually been able to now avoid that because I think once you get into formal complaints and everything comes out with letters with formal council logo on the top of the letterhead and stuff, it's already kind of, you're at odds of each other already and it's very, it's gone too far. So that personal touch and trying to, and I think what people don't expect is people to own mistakes as well if, and there was i don't know if this happened in all sectors but there was some thinking and training previously that we shouldn't say sorry on the phone because that's admitting guilt so it was absolutely ridiculous if we've done something wrong the first thing we should say is sorry and be upfront with that because actually all you're going to do is just really wind people up and then it's just going to escalate and something that's small but small in the grand scheme of things but still a big thing to that person like 
we didn't collect their bin one day or something like that. In the grand scheme of things, it's not, you know, no one's died, it's fine. But that's it's an inconvenience to that individual and it's caused them to complain or get cross. But if we were kind of being standoffish and refusing to say sorry, it's ridiculous. So it's about, yeah, I find the human touch and just, yeah, I, I apologize. Very sorry. I can appreciate how you feel. It's that empathy thing. I think we need to, in we, our training and coaching, we talk about emotional intelligence and trying to help people to understand. And when you humanize it and talk, and when someone talks like that to you, you kind of people, very rarely do people then flip their lid and start effing and jeffing at the agent. You get some, of course you do, but then there are different, but usually then at that point, it all de-escalates and we just get on with fixing the problem because actually once you fix the problem, everything else sort of subsides and some people come in all guns blazing. I want to make a formal complaint. And then once you realise it's about this and you fixed it, then they don't actually just want to get on with their lives because that's what people really want. So it's a kind of reading the customer, but not rising to it and trying to take it down a level and go from there. But there's still things we can learn from that, I suppose, as well, from a feedback point of view. If it is our fault, we need to own that. And then they're going to be more cross if it happens again and again, because the sorry then is less powerful. But if we haven't learned from it, that's frustrating. But where we have mechanisms to look at what's gone wrong, everyone makes mistakes, that's fine let's address it, put it right. And then if it doesn't happen again, then you've got people act. Sometimes those interactions can make them more positive about the organization than they were before, because we did make a mistake, we put hands up and then we resolved it. Yeah. I can't say anything other than I agree with everything you've just said. It makes perfect sense. I think we've all, one of the things that's always struck out to me is that if I'm contacting a company and something significant has happened and someone simply responds with kind of a very dry, oh, I'm sorry about that, moves on, that can be quite impactful. And I've had it at the other end of the spectrum where it's a minor inconvenience and someone's kind of tripping over themselves to be apologetic to the point where it's kind of, okay, ease up a little bit there. So I think it's commensurate to the degree of the issue. One last point, because I'm aware of, I'm conscious of time. So there's one final question that I wanted to put out there. And it's a bit of a left field one. But one of my previous managers said something to me that's always stuck with me. And I really value it. And I just wanted to get your take on it and how you interpret that. And that's that feedback is a gift that's offered, but it doesn't have to be something that we have to take. How do you identify or how do you respond to feedback that's given as a gift that you don't necessarily want to take or can take? Yeah, that's a good one. I like that analogy. I'd probably stretch that analogy further in a different way and say feedback is a gift, so we shouldn't take it for granted. And not that we necessarily need to accept everything, but actually sometimes we do we do take feedback for granted. And, and I've seen situations where it's not valued enough or not really used at all, which is where it's not taking but to, that's not answering your question. Your question was about the gift you didn't want to accept. I suppose it comes from context, doesn't it? I think we often see bits of feedback we think are a bit odd and we're not sure whether that's true. And you have to make a value judgment based on other things. And it's about triangulating it against other things you know. So if there is one person who said, this is really difficult, but we've seen that, and that's where we do it as a team, we can discuss it and look at the data and look at things and say, well, we had 5,000 people complete that form with no issues and the average rating was four stars and this person said it's the worst form they've ever done in their life. I think we can go, that's a gift you can have back. Thank you for that. And we'll move on with our lives and be able to sleep quite well at night. But if a trend emerges, then it can challenge our perception. And if there's other data to back it up, then it can warrant further looking at. So I think there are always going to be people you can't satisfy. And yeah, I think that's, it's a good saying because customer always right is a saying that's often used and often quoted at you when the customer feels they're right and you're or you're not telling them what they want. And we can get people that are very entitled about stuff. Now, customer always right isn't the case. 
but it's good to give them the benefit of the doubt initially and then reflect on that and then work from there. But yeah, we're not holding to it. If someone's given us feedback that doesn't fit with everything else we're seeing, then we should be happy to agree to disagree and move on with our lives and not worry about that. But I think it's about context and looking at it from other perspectives. Excellent. Yeah. Thank you. I know that was a bit left field. So thank you for going with me on that one. Unfortunately, we have kind of come to the end of our time. I have a whole raft of other things that we could easily go on, uh, have another future conversation about. But I just wanted to take the opportunity to say thank you very much for taking the time to speak with me today. It's been really interesting, particularly because it comes from a very different kind of standpoint, the world in which I tend to operate. So it's actually been really interesting to see the differences and similarities between those two universes. So thank you ever so much, James. Um, Really, really appreciate your time today. No, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. James Marshall, thank you very, very much. Thank you. Talk Time is brought to you by Max Contact. To find out more about Max Contact and how our customer engagement software can help you and your teams provide smarter customer experiences, visit maxcontact.com and book your personalized demo today. Be sure to search Talk Time with Max Contact in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found, and leave us a positive rating to help other like-minded individuals join the conversation. Finally, before you go, never miss a future episode by clicking the subscribe button and turning on notifications. On behalf of the team here at Max Contact, thanks for listening.